feminist buzzkills the clown show Matt Gates has no power over. I'm Liz Winstead, and I'm joined by my co-clown, Mochi Alamodale. Honk, honk. This week, the batchet was turned up to 11, and we're going to get to all of it. Catholic hospitals are gobbling up small, non-religiously affiliated hospitals, and that means both bishops and politicians are now the healthcare gatekeepers for way too many Americans. This trajectory is terrifying, and we'll break it down. Plus, Texas AG Ken Paxton hasn't met a scammer he didn't defend, and this week is no exception. He's suing Yelp for... Mm, just wait till we tell you. It's classic Paxton. Classic Paxton. <laughs> and we have even more creepy news out of Texas. But as always, we have the best guest. Comedian Ida Rodriguez is here to talk about her soon-to-be-released memoir, Legitimate Kid. And Vanessa Arenas from the Society of Family Planning is here to talk about this fascinating study that they're doing called We Count which breaks down the details of exactly how many people have been denied abortion care post-Dobbs. Mm, I bet you it's more than we thought and entirely too many. It's all of those things. Mm-hmm. Moji, I'm tired. We had a big week and I feel like I'm dragging. We had such a week, but you know, when we were in the people's faces, we were full energy. So I think that, uh, you know, it's it's a good time to drag. It was fun. It was so much fun. It, there's a really fun sort of massive street fair in, in Brooklyn every year called Atlantic Antic. And it stretches from one part of downtown Brooklyn all the way down to the river. It's like, I don't know, nine blocks long. And there's music and there's really cool vendors. It's not like your typical tube socks and funnel cake kind of situation. The food's good. It's great. And every year we table and we talk to the people of Brooklyn being abortion evangelists. And it's fun. It's like 200,000 people that sort of roll through. And this year we did a Barbie photo booth to sort of lure people in. Oh my God, a life-size one. It was so good. You could pick what you want, kind of Barbie you want to be. So it was like abortion Barbie, queer Barbie, pro-choice Barbie, and tons of people rolled through and they had a photo op and then they learned about our petition for the Miffy Pristone case that's coming down the pike. They learned about big clinics. They learned about all of our work. It was really a gas. What I really loved too, when I was sort of reviewing the pictures is the amount of people who were like, I'm all three Barbies. I am putting abortion Barbie ahead of me and I'm holding queer and poor choice. I was like, Brooklyn really came through and showed out. It was really cool. It was also really cool because normally when we have our booth and we do this every year, it's like when adults can't roll through with their kids, the adults kind of say to the kids, like, I'm just going to go in here for a minute and they pick up our literature and then they don't really have conversations with kids. But because it was this pink sparkly booth that said abortion or pro-choice or queer, A, parents of queer kids were super excited. Yes. But also there was a lot of engagement and conversation about what abortion meant, what it meant to be pro-choice. And so they were interacting with us and having conversation with their kids instead of just sort of brushing that off So while they went into the abortion booth for a second, which I really loved. I mean, I also like last year it was so rainy, right? Which was kind of one of, it was the first one after the DOPS decision. And so we didn't get to sort of see the people when things were going, you know, when we just got the terrible news. And so I think also in general, we're all talking about abortion a little more and there's a little less of being so shameful about it in places like New York, at least. Yeah. And then we had a really fun surprise. A woman walks up and we were asking her to sign a postcard for clinics because a lot of times we have people with a bunch of beautiful postcards and they signed um, love notes to clinics, giving them support. And this woman says, you sound like 
a woman on my podcast. And I was like, so oh, funny. what podcast is that? And she goes, the feminist buzzkills. And I said, honey, we are the feminist buzzkills. And she could not believe it. It was so good. It was so fun. So shout out to Judy Watson Remy, who came yes. up and was so awesome and, and uh, joined the fun. It was really great. So hi, Judy. Hi, Barbie. Hi, everybody. <laughs> then it turned into a fiery weirdness. So then I got home and I was just like, you know, having like, I started drinking the weed drinks. I really like them. <laughs> Ooh. I know. I like a weed drink, like not very flavored, like kind of hint. Yeah. Hint yeah, yeah. Something. I love a weed and drink. And I'm just having a weed drink, scrolling on my phone. And this article pops up from a story that had happened like in 2020, and but I'd never seen it before. Neither did the world. And Qatar Airlines uh, apparently had a flight that was going from Doha to Australia. And in the Doha airport, a child was abandoned. In a bathroom. I think someone had given birth in a bathroom. Yeah. And in Qatar, you get punished if you have unmarried sex or there's all these really strict there's rules. really strict rules. If, if you yeah, an unmarried person could get arrested for having proof of unmarried sex. So they walked onto, I mean, I only know about this airplane. Who knows how many airplanes they walked on? Yanked 13 women off the plane. One was a woman who was like postmenopausal and I think blind. One woman had to leave her two sleeping children and then pulled them off and locked them in an ambulance and then gave them gyno exams to see if they were the ones who gave birth to the baby. What's wild when I read this story was, because I was like, wait, what? Who's just out here giving uh, gyno exams on spec list? Yeah, not not ever a thing. Not ever a thing. The police or the airport police, their TSA, I guess, uh, had gone to other airplanes. We just, I don't know the names of other airplanes, but they said that there were multiple. So they did this potentially to dozens of women just because they're women. That was literally the only thing they had to go on. Oh, you look like you might have a vagina. <laughs> yeah, what a mess. And so hopefully there'll be a class action suit. You know, Australia was weighing in hard, being like, I can't fucking believe it. This will never happen again. I don't think we've heard much from Qatar, the nation. We haven't heard from Qatar. What <laughs> <laughs> do you like to say Qatar? I like to say Qatar. She says Qatar. We have a disagreement in pronunciation, but it seems to be a, an international thing. We haven't heard much from them. But the, what happened was actually the Qatari airline was trying to get more routes in Australia. And uh, the women in Australia were like, oh, hell no. Do you know what they did to us? So uh, yeah. I don't know. That's a, another side to it. But what's wild is the announcement was Qatari CEO announces this won't happen again. <laughs> like it should have happened once. Yeah. We're going to stop doing invasive, involuntary gynecological exams. Also, what are you looking for? I don't know what you would be looking for in this exam that would make you know definitively that this person just gave birth to the baby that someone found in a bathroom. I've never birthed, so I don't know what your vagina looks like in the following subsequent hours. Um, but I mean, are they searching for umbilical cords hanging That's out? What I'm Who knows? saying. The whole thing's a mess. <laughs> There's a couple of different stories. We'll put those links in our show notes. But it was just one of those jarring things where I'm like, maybe I shouldn't do weed drink. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I see like, how oh, that could really fuck on me. you up with a weed drink. <laughs> but yeah, that was the story that got me wild. So we tossed it over to Molly for more garbage news. Please, yeah. Molly, where you at? I will oblige 
Hello, friends. <laughs> I'm back at you with another steaming news dump. I'm dutifully reporting on the shit stains, trying to flush our rights. This week, we're going to start in Wisconsin, where we've been covering the case of the non-abortion abortion ban that keeps on not giving. As you know, a judge concluded in a preliminary hearing that their so-called abortion ban from 1849 did not actually pertain to abortion at all. So providers started offering abortion again last month. Well, that really pissed off pro-life Wisconsin, who has pressured DAs to prosecute and pressured local law enforcement to arrest the providers. And they failed hard. So now they are resorting to making medical license complaints. These guys have nothing better to do. They're like the indignant townspeople with the pitchforks trying to drive out health care, which is apt because the law they are trying to enforce is from a time when people were driven out of town with pitchforks. <laughs> Onto other states trying to drive out the scourge of health care. Idaho. Idaho. No, Liz. Utah. Every time. Classic. Classic. So as we know, after Roe was overturned, abortion was banned in Idaho, Utah. So naturally, after that, of course, they put millions into making sure that babies and the people who birthed them are healthy. I'm just kidding. Okay. They have <laughs> disbanded a maternal mortality committee, rejected postpartum Medicaid coverage, and declined federal grants for child care. You know... It makes sense why it's called the gem state now, because the only type of health care they have left will be crystals. Ectopic pregnancy? Try a rose quartz suppository. And try not to die. Thank you. And bringing up the rear of the shit show is, of course, say it with me, Texas. Tarrant County uh, in Texas has withdrawn all funding for a Girls Inc. program called Girl Power because they accept trans kids and are pro-choice and are generally not shitty. So the campaign against the program was waged by a rabid mob from Moms for Liberty, including one woman who called Girls Inc. an extremist organization. Yeah, with all the extremist self-esteem building and STEM training, they should probably just go ahead and change their name to the Proud Girls. Thanks so much. That's been your steaming news dump. Back to you guys. That is just unbelievable. Girls Inc. is one of those adorable clubs that just gives girls opportunity to just like build self-esteem. They teach not to be garbage and moms for liberty. Literally, you've grown up to be the opposite of everything Girls Inc. is trying to raise girls to be. I find it rich. It's just more truth that like, it's not about the kids. <laughs> Never about the kids. Never. But I do like the Proud Girls as an auxiliary. Yeah, really good. Proud boys. <laughs> I mean, I think they're called Moms for Liberty. I think Moms for Liberty should maybe change their names to that. Miles, thanks for joining Thank us. Thank you, Molly. Anytime. Liz. Let's get to our big stories. I know there's so many stories. So we're just going to continue in Texas. Thank you, Molly. With world-class thug financial grifter and Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton making another headline. This time, he fucked around and found out with Yelp. Paxton is big mad that Yelp had the unmitigated gall to identify fake clinics on their website as wait for it, fake clinics. They simply use a disclaimer that states the fact that fake clinics, quote, typically provide limited medical services and may not have licensed medical professionals on site. Oh, to the truth? So the truth. 
And, you know, Ken hates the truth and he especially hates it when it exposes his lying sacks of shit pals. So he's suing Yelp, claiming Yelp is violating the Texas Deceptive Trade Practices Consumer Protection Act and is suing to have the Yelp disclaimer be taken off hundreds of fake clinic sites. And then Yelp was like, uh, nope, free speech. And where are we lying? And also, here's a countersuit, bitch. And it does not look good for old Ken. Because here's the deal. It's the rub for old Ken. So the research cited in his own <laughs> lawsuit reveals that the majority of people who staff these fake clinics are not, in fact, licensed medical professionals. And as of 2019, only about 15% of these pregnancy centers combined staff and volunteer workers were actually licensed medical professionals. So that's just like 10,000 people in like nearly 70,000 people who are employed. And here's the best part. The research that he had in his website comes from this organization called the Charlotte Lozier Institute, which is sham research company that is highly touted by the anti-abortion movement. The anti-abortion movement uses their research constantly. So they can't even say like liberals did a study. It's like your people did a study that you put in your website Proving the other side's case, you dumb shit. So even when they cook the books, they still don't want to tell the truth about who they are. It's like, oh, Yelp basically just said, oh, fake clinics are fake clinics, right? They don't have medical professionals. They don't have whatever. And Ken Paxton is like, how dare you say what they really are? Well, right. And then he cites one of the fake clinics was like, here's the accreditation of our of some medical people that work here. And, and what everybody needs to be clear on is that Sometimes when they show medical accreditation, it could be a podiatrist. Yeah. Like they could have somebody who is like vaguely loosely medical adjacent or somebody who doesn't have to do with gynecological care or birthing of any kind. But what's nuts is when a bunch of AGs who are also anti-abortion jumped on and was like, we're also going to sue. This is terrible. You have to change your thing. So Yelp, they were like, okay, I'll play. We'll amend our statement to say crisis pregnancy centers do not offer abortions or referrals to abortion providers. And in the Yelp lawsuit, they have a, a notice from Paxton's office that says that new description provides a, quote, accurate description. So Ken just has time. Ken just is like, I agree. That's fine. But I'm still suing. Yeah, he's just like, I have just narrowly escaped real problems of my own. They're being impeached. So what I have is time. Well, he also doesn't have that much time because he will be entering into a civil suit very soon for all of his like financial shenanigans. So I think this is kind of a deflection. But like Ken Paxton, uh, we'll be following the story because go Yelp. And by the way, if you haven't been to our Exposed Fake Clinics website, it's a program that we run that exposes these fake clinics and it shows you how to write Yelp reviews that are honest, very similar to what Yelp is um, putting up on these different sites. And you can help Yelp identify some of these clinics by doing some research, um, all sorts of ways to expose fake clinics. So exposefakeclinics.com, we'll say it in the show notes. And we'll be following Ken Paxton's shenanigans because they're wild. This is wild. <laughs> and it's bored. <laughs> yeah, what do you got, Mo? Liz, you're aware, but maybe our listeners are not, that there is a secret 
semi-stealthy player, quietly eating up access to reproductive health care, even in places that we assume are safe, like New York and California. All around the country, Catholic hospitals are merging with other private secular hospitals and then imposing their religious doctrine on anyone who walks in their door, any patient that does. This is really upsetting, A, because patients will not know, right? They might have, like for years or for decades, had like this hospital that was reliable, and then they show up at this hospital post-merger because who's paying attention? into mergers. And then they'll be like bleeding because of a miscarriage or want birth control or want to talk about birth control. And they will be denied these services because of the doctrine that uh, Catholic hospitals in particular basically sign on to that is set by the, what is it? The Bishop of a... Yeah, it's called the Conference of Catholic Bishops. And so I think we all sort of blanketly understand that like Catholic hospitals are trash and that they don't allow abortion. But I think what a lot of people don't understand is Literally every Catholic hospital is run by, their medical ethics are run by the whim of the bishop in that archdiocese. So a more liberal bishop might ha- might see a little bit of a leeway for a life-saving care versus some like, you know, doctrined, you know, Opus Dei asswipe who's like, women shouldn't even go to the doctor. They shouldn't even be here. You know, it's all on the whim of that. It is a little on the web of that, but also Directive 5 of the directives is that the directives are policy, which is wild. So really, the the leeway is on enforcement, how much a bishop wants to enforce. But that's what I'm saying is that a bishop can interpret the policies different, right? Yeah, absolutely. So the policies laid out. And I, you know, being somebody who born and raised Catholic, have watched this shit for a really long time and watch these hospitals get gobbled up. The reason we're talking about this today is there's a really fascinating article that sort of focuses on a community in upstate New York who's going through one of these mergers where rural hospitals don't have the money to stay open. And then these Catholic hospitals swoop in and it's IVF, it's HRT, it's it's miscarriage management. It's a lot of shit that are being denied care. And sometimes the hospital can be called like verdant. It's not always like Saint, you know, hates abortion. You know, it can be low key. You don't know. And even if they don't have it in the name, even or even if they do, 21% of Catholic hospitals, they don't say it on their website, right? So they could not be a Catholic hospital. They could be another just using the saint name in there. Yeah. And 28% advertise yep. how their Catholic affiliation might influence care. And that's scary. Yeah, I mean, I I joke in some ways they're like fake clinics, but with a higher percentage of actual medical professionals. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And so I highly recommend reading this article and then paying attention to the hospitals in your area to see if they're thriving. Because, you know, the only recourse at this point so far is the numbers are staggering that like secular hospitals are dropping, like they dropped 15% over the past like five years and Catholic hospitals have surged 30%. And we just can't have Catholic hospital groups gobbling up care. I mean, and I never want to say, especially in, because everyone deserves care. But if we're having abortion providers shut down in states and people are rushing to states like California and New York, and the clinics that are available are overloaded, hospitals are where people will go. And if those hospitals especially in rural areas and stuff, are gobbled up by Catholics. It doesn't matter how liberal the state is. Those those hospitals are run by the doctrine of the Catholic 
bishops. It is fully legal for Catholic hospitals to deny care that is legal, that is guaranteed in the state that it is operating in. And so there's no there's no even legal recourse if you're like, but I was I had a miscarriage. They're like, well, we're here and we have this directives. And also, again, what you were saying about the safety and sort of feeling like you're in one of these states where abortion access or reproductive access is safe. They also have states like Indiana, where you have these exceptions for rape, which we know exceptions don't work, but there's only one place around in the whole state that could do an exception abortion if you needed one, because Catholic hospitals are in the other places and they won't do it at all, along with all the restrictions in the state. It's actually really kind of terrifying and really stealthy. There's so much to unpack with this story. And it was so rich in what this trend looks like that like, we'll throw it obviously in our show notes, but go read the story. And then seriously, if you're listening and you're living in a space that's rural, a space that doesn't have a lot of hospital access, try to find out what's going on in your state because it doesn't have protections at the Catholic takeover. And that's a mess. Yep. As always, these stories will be in our show notes, and you can find the best, most up-to-the-minute resources on accessing abortion care and funding your care on our website, AA Front. Our Charlie chatbot on the bottom right will walk anyone, anywhere in the country through their options and resources for abortion. That's right. And I think we have the perfect guest to roll out of this Catholic abomination. Oh, take us there, Liz. Right. So it was amazing. I had the privilege of sitting down with Vanessa Arenas, the senior project manager of the Society for Family Planning, to talk about We Count, which is a research project that has been collecting data from abortion providers to really understand how abortion access has changed following the Dobbs decision. Here with all of that information is Vanessa Arenas. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Liz. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me to talk about WeCount. Well, I'm so excited to talk to you about WeCount, about your work, about everything. And I am lucky enough to uh, know about your work. But before we dive into this awesome project you're working on, tell folks about Society for Family Planning and what you do there in your role as Senior Project Manager. Yeah, absolutely. So the Society of Family Planning is a professional membership organization of um, clinicians, researchers, and we really focus on doing research around abortion and contraception. My role came in with the beginning of We Count. Um, I was pulled in to sort of stand up this really ambitious project, and I'm really kind of the lead on implementation to make sure that this project gets off the ground, keeps going, and the train keeps moving. <laughs> Tell folks a little bit about WeCount. I guess we'll dive in there because you all do some really important research work, stats work, data work that really helps inform what the abortion landscape looks like. And this WeCount is an incredible deep dive into abortion stats that were leading up to Dobbs and then directly following the decision. Can you talk about why this kind of data is so critical to especially help us better understand the impact of Dobbs? Absolutely. So as your listeners will know, the Dobbs ruling really impacted and completely turned the abortion landscape upside down. And so what was missing was at the time a, a, a way to capture what those changes were as close to real time as possible. So what we count does, it's a, a national abortion reporting effort where we're tracking the changes in abortion volume by state in the months following the Dobbs ruling. So we're really seeing what is the impact on abortion access and obtainment in the months as a result of the Dobbs ruling. 
tell us what your findings were because I, I mean, I kind of know I saw some surprises, but I want to hear from you. Like, A, I want to know how you chose the pre-time, you know, why you chose just those few months before and then, and then took it past because it seems like you, you know, a dummy like me who doesn't understand why people do research um, would say, wow, how come you didn't do like the year before and then following? That's a great question and a couple of answers. So really there was a scramble in the field after the, the the hearing happened in December of 2021, where it was really clear that things were not going to go in our favor. So there was a scramble to figure out how do we actually capture what's happening? And so the Society of Family Planning happened to have the resources available to kind of stand that up quickly, but it was still a few months after that hearing happened where we were able to get things running. And so one of the things that is challenging about those two pre-dubs months, and that's April and May 2022, is that there were certain restrictions that were already in place. So SB8 was already happening. And so those numbers were already a little bit suppressed. But we want- And I just want to tell people that SB8 is that Texas law we first heard about that was the bounty hunting law that mm-hmm. introduced the six-week ban into Texas. So that was like the precursor to a lot of this. That was in September of 2021. Yeah, that's correct. And so we really wanted to capture a couple of months before what was anticipated to be the ruling from the Supreme Court. And so what we wanted to do is give folks an idea what was happening before that decision and then what happened in the months that followed. And I think what we saw um, very interestingly was that there was a significant drop because a lot of state restrictions went into effect right after the Dobbs ruling came down. But what was really interesting is that um, many of the folks that were modeling or projecting what was going to happen if the if Roe was overturned really expected those progressive states on the coast to be the receiving states, the ones where everybody traveled to for care. And what we realized was that besides the, the volatility month to month as, as the abortion community really tried to sort of make sense and recover from that hit was that it was a lot of the states that were actually surrounded by banned states that became those with the greatest increases. So we're thinking of places like Illinois, North Carolina, Florida, where not necessarily everybody was going to the states that you would have assumed. People really wanted to stay local and try to get care close to their families and their communities. Well, Vanessa, what's so interesting, I live part of the time in Brooklyn and part of the time in Minnesota, Mm -hmm. and I'm on the board of an independent clinic here. And what we saw was 30% of our patients were from Texas. And that means people were traveling, like they were calling states leading up to they could finally get to Minnesota. And I thought that was super interesting. Absolutely. And here's the thing, we can, we'll give you one piece of that story. And there's so many other pieces that you can get from talking to funds to practical support organizations. But what people are having to go through just to be able to access care in a neighboring state or that state then going dark and then having to go to another state, that kind of um, that sort of relay to try to get care close to home has been really impactful and, and a really important story to tell about the impact of Dobbs. Well, and and I want to say that the Society of Family Planning is such an incredible organization, so inclusive, so wonderful. And you've built up a lot of relationships to be able to get accurate data because the way to get accurate data is that you have to have trusted relationships with the independent providers, with the practical support funds, with the abortion funds, so that they can trust you with telling you this is how many people we have serviced in the various ways that these people help provide the care. So talk to me a little bit about how you developed those relationships and how 
how how you actually did this like how did how did we count work like how does it work absolutely i mean it really what's really interesting and fascinating about WeCount is that it really has become a collaborative effort. I was telling you before, Liz, I come from an independent clinic background. So I had some relationships in the community as a provider. And the society is really well poised because of a large membership to be able to connect with folks in different parts of the country. And so when we started the effort, there was some level of traditional outreach, an invitation, a call. But what ultimately was most effective was kind of the word of mouth and and people doing those warm introductions, trusted people in the community, like you said, that could make the connection and say, this is a really important effort. If you trust me, you can trust this effort. And that's really how it became the collaborative study that it is. So you've collected information. Talk a little bit about why this information is important and how folks like our listeners, folks who are working in the movement, who are desperately trying to come up with any way they can to repeal these bans and to expand access to abortion, how can they use this data in their own conversations, life, work, activism? Absolutely. It's really important to see this because you're really being able to see the story at a state level. You're seeing what the state level restrictions are doing to abortion access and just how the the whole disruption of the abortion landscape has happened. And so for folks who maybe are not quite as involved in this work as our community, they're able to see that this many people were not able to access their abortion in a certain month or cumulatively have not been able to access abortion. And that's a really important story to tell along with the stories that we're hearing in the news about people being denied care or having to travel or spend a lot of money to be able to get their care. It's actually giving some quantifiable numbers and data to back up that conversation. And I think the other piece that's really important too is that for policy advocates, for folks that are running their clinics and having to make programmatic decisions about how to move forward in the months ahead, this is pretty close to real um, time data. I mean, we're doing this usually with about a three or four month delay, where usually you're you're waiting a year or two to be able to get a sense of what the abortion volume numbers were. Well, and you know, when I was looking at all of the people that you were talking to in the ways that people provide care, it was really important to me because one of the things that we've seen, especially with a media who is profoundly derelict in their duties on how they report, mm-hmm. which means oftentimes the anti-abortion movement can control the narrative. And one of the narratives that the anti-abortion movement has come is with this decline of people getting care, they've been able to position themselves as, look, we've reduced the number of abortions. And it's like, no, no, to actually hear and have you be able to interview people who have heard firsthand stories that it's People that were denied care, not people who were talked out of care or thought about it differently or all these horrible ways and laws that they've enacted. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about like what that framing is. Why was abortion reduced? We know it's bans, but like specifically, like what were some of the statistics that you saw that like, I want to say surprised you, but I know it didn't because you're a researcher, but would surprise us and also break our hearts. I think it's important for people to hear what people went through in being denied care. There's so many aspects to this. I mean, again, the number only gives you a really high level look at this, but we're looking at people who are having to leave their communities to get care if they're even able to get care. We're seeing how the practical support organizations and abortion funds are really trying to streamline processes so that people can actually get the care that they need. And we know that 
many more folks are just not being able to get the care that they want and that they that they have the right to get within their communities. They're having to travel. They're having to make very difficult decisions just to be able to get what is essential health care. And I think one of the what's really striking when you look at places like the South, where you're looking at Texas, what you're looking at, the impact of gestational bans on places like Georgia, where you're really seeing not only access being denied, but the work that the clinics and the providers are doing just to try to stay afloat and to provide that care. And and as somebody who comes from an independent clinic background, I understand how much it means to take 10 or 20 more patients a week, which might not seem very big when you're looking at an aggregate number for the state, but those are many, many more hours of people working, doing the hard work just to be able to get people care, especially if they've traveled from other states to get there. A hundred percent. And while medication abortion is been so groundbreaking, as we've seen restrictions and bans happen, and as we've seen people just trying to organize their lives so they can access care, that 10-week hard line, which as we're waiting to hear, the Supreme Court's possibly going to take this case to roll it back to seven weeks. That 10-week line means more and more people need in-clinic abortions. And so having the clinics disappear is so incredibly crucial. And also, I'd love to talk a little bit too about the providers like in Alabama. You know, I'm thinking of like the clinic in Tuscaloosa that Robin Marty and Leah Torres run. You know, I'm thinking of the clinics who are trying to stay open, who can no longer provide abortion care, but who really want to guide people in their pregnancy journey and help them and are unable to. Did your study cover any of that at all? It didn't necessarily cover that piece, but we did really kind of bring in the partnership. So one of the things that we really try to do with WeCount before we release any data to the to the public is to really, this is something that we feel really strongly about, is to return that data to the providers first, because we want to hear from them. What are we missing? What are you interpreting from this data? And it's really important, and it's a value of ours to make sure that those who are providing the data get the data back first, because so many times it's been where you, you give the data and you never see it again, and it becomes a paper for somebody some, you know, a year or two later. So it's really important that people are seeing the value and the contribution that they're giving and really to pay, to bear witness to the important work they're doing. I mean, we're talking about clinics that have been open 20, 30, 40 years and having to close and having to turn people away, having to turn their staff away. Like that's really heartbreaking and you don't always get that in the numbers. It's exactly right. And and also just for folks to understand and why I think this study is so important is for folks to understand that for low-income folks, uh, rural folks, sometimes the abortion provider is the one place they could go or where there was affordable health care. And also when there's, it builds community, it builds communities of activists, you know, it's, it's supportive. It get, helps people rally around um, the bands and all that stuff. And, and without them being there, a real crucial core part of grassroots organizing goes away. Absolutely. And, and this is again, why we really want to bear witness to the role that clinics have in their communities mm-hmm. and what happens when they're forced to close the doors. A hundred percent. This has been so great. One thing I wanted to ask you that's slightly off of We Count, but in the same vein, and because your organization does so much great work in family planning, is I'd love for you to just give a little bit of an insight and a little bit of conversation to folks. I hear the public, and again, I, I get so mad at the media that I'm always like just blaming them for everything because the information that they give is so garbage. It's like when when people are saying, 
they're next, they're coming for your birth control or look out the next step is when you and I both know that's already here. I would love for you just to comment a little bit to our listeners about what you're seeing as that assault on birth control taking shape and what we need to know. Yeah. I mean, I think we have seen that we have a court that really does not care about dialing back. Um, (laughs) You know, we're seeing so many heartbreaking stories and I do also want to say there are many stories of resiliency. I mean, the, the abortion provider community is very resilient. So it's been wonderful to see how they're able to sort of bounce back and be responsive to this. But the truth is that there's significant proof that reproductive health and rights are not considered as healthcare. There are completely different standards when it comes to access to abortion and contraception that feels somehow like it's easier to take away than than other healthcare rights. And, and that is very, very clear with the story as it's evolving and seeing that people are still finding ways to further restrict access, even seeing the impact that Dobbs has already had. It's so true. And and the thing that I find so troubling about that is the flippancy of with which others just so easily talk about it and how easy it is for them to not big picture what this means. It is literally the first step anybody takes when they evaluate their entire life course, right? And that is just so unbelievable to me that sometimes I feel like even with people who are passively pro-choice, I like to call them, that there's these things are accepted, that it's accepted to challenge the competence of somebody who is seeking abortion care as though they need more time, as though the the government should be thinking about those kind of things for people. One thing I wanted to ask you next, of all of the things in the study that you now have sort of digested and looked at, what's the thing that keeps you up at night? And what's the thing that gives you hope? If there's two things you could sort of zero in on. That's a really great question. And I think to your point, the flippancy of just being able to sort of take away the right. And like you said, this is, we often like to talk about abortion as though it's a separate issue. And really it's so related to everything having to do with autonomy, how you decide your life, how you are perceived in the world, how you are able to reflect yourself, your your identity in the world, and the way in which it has been so flippantly sort of taken away as a gift that was given and, and can be taken away is something that keeps me up at night. I keep thinking to myself, the clinics, the providers are very resilient, but when is it going to be too much? We're asking so much of providers already. Mm-hmm. We're asking them to figure this out. And there's a point where it just becomes too much. So that keeps me up at night is what does this mean for the clinic that's been open for 40 years and then has to, you know, lay off their staff who've been with them for 30 years and have devoted their entire lives to access. And now they all of a sudden from one day to the next have to close. And what gives me hope is the way that the community really came together. And, And I'm so grateful to every single person who either shared a flyer or, or made a warm introduction and really sort of communicated the importance of getting this data because it would just simply not be possible if it weren't for the people who made those connections and the providers who are actually sending us data while trying to take care of patients and keep their clinics afloat. So that kind of um, resiliency, that kind of collaboration coming together and wanting to share the story is what gives me hope. 
And within that, how could our listeners help ease that burden? You know, it's it's a perfect place for me to just plug our, our program, Operation Save Abortion, um, the work that we do on the ground, bringing community together with, with the providers. But I'd love for you to throw out some ideas for folks. Um, and we'll put, of course, all this in the show notes. But, you know, how can a regular person, aside from financially, and we'll say donate always, but what's something somebody can do? Because I feel like moral support's huge. Yeah, make friends with your local abortion providers. Get to know who your abortion funds are or the practical support organizations. Let them know that they're on the right side of history. They're doing the the important work. And sometimes just hearing from community members that they are a valued part of that community can mean so much. And certainly, you know, we count as one resource for data, but there's multiple researchers that are doing some post-job studies to really understand. So Share the information, have the communicate, have the conversations with folks and let them know this is important. And we need to actually really support those that are doing this work because they're the ones who are really holding things together. It's so true. I would also just put a shout out into Keep Our Clinics, the uh, ACN fund that is always looking out for the needs of clinics. We also have an Adopt-A-Clinic program on our website where clinics are giving us their wish list of things they need. So many ways to do it. Vanessa, thank you so much for this research and for the work you do because it just elevates the conversation. It puts another tool in somebody's toolbox with this work that you've done to have them really help and keep these clinics open. Thank you so much. Thank you, Liz. Thank you for having me. And thanks again to everybody who has supported the work. Visit societyfp.org slash we count to read the report, find graphics that you can share on social. And if you're an abortion provider, sign your clinic up to participate. We'll also put the link in our show notes. Incredible. And Liz, are you ready? I'm always ready. Are you ready to play the party game that's faster than Monopoly and more fun than Taboo? Are you ready? I don't know if I'm ready or not, but I'm saying I'm ready. (laughs) Why do you not believe me? Why are you mistrusting my judgment? You're like those 24-hour waiting periods. You need more time. You need do you need 72 hours before we play this game, Liz? I need to get to the game. It's six degrees of abortion. And this is when I take a story from the news and Liz has six chances to link it to abortion. Let's see if I can stump her this week. Uh, This was really fun. I was perusing the rags and I found out that Sia, the singer, is showing us her face. She got a plastic surgery. She got a facelift a couple of months ago, I suppose. And she introduced her plastic surgeon at a uh, Society for Beauty Muckety Muck thing in L.A., with no big wig and just a face that looks pretty normal. And so can you link Sia to abortion? Is it allowed for me to link um, Sia to somebody doing a Sia impression? Let's try without that. Um, I don't know much about Sia, except for that, you know, the wigs and the weirdo stuff. And um. So Sia, I thought Sia did something with Rihanna. Just And the only reason I think I know that is because you know everything Rihanna does. And so you probably mentioned it. So I'm going to say Sia to Rihanna. Rihanna's talked about her abortion. And I just tied her to abortion. Hmm. I've never heard of Rihanna talking about it. I mean, I think she's pro-choice. I would not say that Rihanna's not pro-choice. I just... I feel like I've lost this one. I'm not even going to try. <laughs> you know what? Here's the deal. I am... I have to, I need, I have have the vapors. I need to take to the bed. 
I feel like exhausted today. And I'm going to say that I lost on Sia. I'm going to say that you're probably there, though. It's probably Rihanna something because Rihanna and it, literally Sia has done music for like every freaking body. Like she's, she's probably done soundtracks to abortions. That's what I'm saying. She's, she's probably choreographed abortion. Definitely choreographed an abortion or four. Absolutely. I just don't <laughs> even know. Like, how old is that Sia? She's probably she seems like maybe she's like 40. Maybe 30, somewhere between 30 and 50. I would put her between 30 and 50. You know, you all can weigh in, you know, send us an email at podcast at aafront.org. Yes. Let me know if I won or you can chastise me or tell me I'm being weak today. Let's move on. All right, let's move on. We're closing in on our next guest. But before we get there, as you all know, we just simply can't do this podcast without the substantial contributions of our fake sponsors. and. This episode is no exception. They're great. Attention husbands, are you noticing your wife has become a little too curious about her independence? Have you caught her binging Virgin River or checking Showtimes for the Barbie movie? And Idle Mind is the devil's playground and you need to give her activities that redirect her thoughts back to what's important, you. Introducing Gyrex, the only line of cookware designed by men and crafted to focus her energy away from the influences of satanic feminisms and towards serving you, just as God intended. Gyrex products like the Everdoll Kitchen Knives will help expand simple prep time into a marathon. And their top-selling all-stick pans keep her so focused on scrubbing, she won't remember what free time even is. Order now and Gyrex will throw in their patented weighted apron. Keeps her grounded in the work and in the role she was blessed with. Gyrex, for your pleasure and her protection. This sounds great. Every dull kitchen knife is where I am if I haven't sharpened my knives adequately. <laughs> I've accidentally ended up there before. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like indentured servitude. It sounds a little bit like that. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Not great. Should we move on to our guest? Our next guest is a brilliant comedian who has HBO specials and still finds time to travel with AAF around the country helping abortion providers. Her new memoir, Legitimate Kid, comes out October 17th. If you don't know her comedy, she's legitimately hilarious. Here's a clip. But the thing about it is that when Puerto Ricans say son of a bitch, they don't say son of a bitch. They say hijo de la gran puta, which means son of the greatest bitch. Like the biggest bitch ever. That bitch, that bitch. That's the bitch I'm talking about right there. Please welcome Ida Rodriguez. Ida, thank you for joining us. Hi, Ida. Hi. Yeah, this is not your first time hanging with AAF, right? No, you have no. been with us on the road before. Yeah. Uh, you know what's funny is uh, I had um, one of my favorite shows I ever did was in Milwaukee with you guys. And it was uh, me, Gina, Yashere, and Jackie Cation. And that was the energy in that room was, if I could, you know, my, if I had my druthers, that would be the audience that I would have everywhere I go. Cause that was, those are my people. Like, you know, as a comedian, I've, I've evolved to this place where I don't want everybody. I want the people, <laughs> the thinkers, you know, the readers, the people who care about other people's humanity. And that, that was the audience that came out to those shows. You want to curate your audience. Got it. But I mean, I think that that's right. And I I feel the same way. And I've tried to do that. And when you get with people who are 
profoundly and overtly out there under the guise of bodily autonomy. They are your, that is your people. Yeah. And we were there supporting an abortion clinic in Milwaukee and then doing a show. And you came to the clinic to do some yeah. clinic outreach with us. And um, I remember you just being like, I thought I knew, but oh my God. <laughs> no, you know, what's funny. Um, I have pictures still of me, you and Gina Yashere on the corner, having a conversation with this man that was holding a baby, a doll that was burnt. And it was his, his representation of a fetus and what happens to, like, obviously this man has, I mean, I'm, I doubt that he even had sex before, but it was just so like. Or knows was, how abortion works. There's no burning involved. There's no blow torches in abortion. <laughs> Can I just put that out there? But it was so weird because the doll that he had, it was burnt and it was for effect. And we were across the street from one of the fake clinics. So we people don't realize the danger that people put themselves in to fight for humanity. Like it's just, it's not danger of getting cursed out. It's actual danger. Your life is in danger when we're when we were out there, we were so vulnerable. And it was just, it was amazing to be a part of that experience for me. I was like, I, I thought if anybody thought I was going in a different direction, I was, I was not. I was thrilled to be a part of something like that. And, you know, I always think about when I die and people talk about me, I want people to say that I stood for something as opposed to how many followers I had on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't think you have any worries of no. that. For God's sakes. And now that COVID's over and we're slowly getting back out there, you know, we're going to be tapping you up again for it. I'm going. Actually, you did do a special just as COVID was winding down. You did a special that we love (laughs) so much uh, called Fighting Words. And do you consider yourself a political comic? You know what? Uh, No, I don't. And it's funny because other people do. And I think that people who consider themselves political comics, a lot of them, especially the conservative ones, are not funny. Um, But if you pay attention to the ones, because they they have to hide under that, I'm a political comic. I think that being women, being people of color, being a Black woman, we are always political just in existing. (laughs) You know, our existence is political. Uh, My grandmother couldn't read. My great-great-grandmother was a slave. I am a political act just every single time I open my mouth. And so for me, I don't have to pat myself on the back. That's because that's exactly what I was thinking. I was like, I've never heard you say you were a political comic, but like there's nothing not political about what you say and how how observational you are, just how real you are. You know what it is, is that I've always felt it was my duty to stand up. It was my duty to read the, the papers that the government would send my grandmother because she couldn't read. It was my duty to help the lady across the street who couldn't walk. She had a cane. It, I never felt like I was doing anybody a favor. It always felt like my duty. But, you know, man, we have to show up. And there are things that are so much more important than vanity and fame. And it's just we are living in times and that are no different than times that people were living in before. No matter how much they say, oh, we've moved along so much. When Latin America is making bigger strides in this particular (laughs) moment, you know, where patriarchy and sexism are key 
And that green wave movement is making such noise. And Americans are out here fighting for fundamental rights. You know the world is crazy. Americans are running backwards. I said before, your comedy is so observational. And I meant it in like, you tell a mom joke, not in a like, ooh, my mom wants me to marry a doctor, but really more like my mom will fuck some shit up kind of way. How do you decide what you want to reveal about yourself and your family when you are creating your act? Liz has one of my favorite jokes. She was on stage and she was talking about how they call God Allah in another language. And the people were like complaining about Allah. They were talking about Muslims. It was anti-Islamic. And she was like, you know, they got another word for butter too. And that's always one of my favorite jokes because it's it's so random, but it's so poignant. It's like some to the dummies that that joke is just about the difference in words. But the the reality that was underneath that joke is about bigotry, right? To me. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm like sitting there. So when I think about my jokes and what I want to say, I always said that as a woman of color, as a Latina, a woman who identifies with her Blackness and her indigenous roots, I never wanted to deny my family their humanity. So they would never be caricatures in my stories. And even when I tell about how my mother would beat somebody's ass, it was an act of rebellion in a time when a Puerto Rican woman was only seen getting raped on a Charles Brunson movie, only being seen you know, as a stereotype with having whatever She didn't give a shit. She decided that she was going to fight for her children and was not going to let a racist woman hit her child. And when she went in there and they tried to put her in jail because she assaulted the teacher, she said, well, me and the teacher are both going to jail. She's going for child abuse and I'm going for assault. And that principal sent her home. I was like, this bitch is smart. (laughs) (laughs) And to somebody, she's a violent Puerto Rican woman. But to me, she was a woman who understood law. She knew the law. And she was like, I know what I'm going to do and I know how I'm going get, to get through it. So for me, it was always just painting this picture. It's always been painting the pictures of where I come from and granting those people the, their humanity that you will never see other places because it's so much easier to blow up making a fun of your people and making them caricatures and making them clowns. You know, it's so much easier. I could have 10 million followers on TikTok. Maybe not 10 because I don't have a penis, but <laughs> I could, though. But if you, know you just talked I mean? about you hated yourself, then you could. They would, they, people love you for that. And, you know, Liz is one of the people like there. There are people who Jackie Cation, you know, Lori Kill Martin. There are so many women that have made a decision that they were they have something to say. For me, it's always been about what you're trying to say this time for they ready my whole thing about was how men have, are shitty and have ruined the world. And, you know, I was able to get to that. I had to start with me and I had to, <laughs> I had to disarm the audience and say, I come from these people and this is where I come from and this is who I am. But really it was the point about how men have ruined the world. And I felt it. I'm so glad that as we've evolved and as that has been minusculely easier to lay out those truths It's still super hard, but it would be easier to say, well, things are getting better. So I don't want to make waves. Like, how am I going to make the good guys feel who are doing? It's like people who are good and people who are working towards being anti-racist and doing a lot, you know, it's when it's not about you. And then, you know, when it is about you. And then, you know, that like you're part of the problem always if you look like me. Right. And so I like that you just don't let it rest. And you also 
you surf that shit, man. Like you are good. It is like mm-hmm. a good surfer because you'll go in and you're gentle about it and you're moving it and you make it look easy. And I don't know how you pull it off, but you will literally say men are fucking trash. And it comes out <laughs> as though, tell me more about that. Like literally guys in hoods are like, tell me more about that. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I'm so, I've been aware of this stuff for a long time. I was in the ghetto of Miami in New York as a kid, observing that women were not being treated the same. It wasn't, I was in church struggling, thinking this is dangerous, feeling like I was in danger in church. Like, I just remembered this consciousness that I, I don't know where it came from. And I don't know, I mean, if I, if, if I had if I had my way at that time, I probably wouldn't want it because it was heavy. But I've always been conscious of, you know, how powerful my grandmother was. Like I I didn't look run to anybody other than my grandmother when I felt endangered. I was like, she is so strong. Like she when she it was so much that when my grandmother got cancer and she got sick, I resented her for it because that was the weakest I had ever seen her in my mind. And I didn't realize that my grandmother got diagnosed with cancer in 2001. And they told her that she was not going to live for nine months. They were like, she's going to, she's going to, she probably will make it nine months at most. And I called my grandmother and said, I'm coming home. I'm going to be by your side every step of the way. And she said, save your ticket money. She said, when I'm going to die, I'll let you know. And she died 13 years later. Oh my God. <laughs> 13 years later, she told me, she let me know when she was at the end. And um, the last thing I bought her was some chicken McNuggets because she went out guns a blazing. <laughs> she was good. Grandma's a gangster. <laughs> but it was just the, the idea of just knowing these things. And how could I not talk about it? And there are a lot of people who come from the place that I come from and sound like me. And they deserve a voice that they're comfortable with giving them the information that they need that other people are not going to give them because they're too busy being condescending and pompous and fucking racist. I decided that I'm going to go talk to my people because I know that we have numbers and the numbers can make a difference. I feel like the way that you talk and the way that you tell these stories about your family are so intimate and really make a person feels like feel like they know you even watching your stand up and you have a book coming out in October, Legitimate Kid, which I'm really excited about because it seems like you you kind of lean into that sort of deeply autobiographical and personal conversations about your life and what you've come through. What made you decide that now was the time to flex that particular muscle and share your story in that way? Okay, so uh, Liz Winstead is one of the examples of the careers that I respect. You know, I'm not just a comedian, um, but the at the foundation of everything that I do is writing, and it always has been. Um, as a kid, you know, I used to write plays, and my first play I wrote was My Wedding to Michael Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> How'd that go? <laughs> Child, if I could go back and talk, you have so many things to talk about my inner child with. That was definitely one of them. But what I will tell you is this, is that um, when I sat down, there's a time where I was looking to write a book and I was reaching out. I was talking to agents. I was talking to editors. I was talking to people that I knew in the book uh, and I was pushing, pushing really hard and it didn't happen. And then I made the decision to just let it go. I released it. 
And then I got two DMs from two different major publishing houses that were like, hey, we would like to talk to you about a book. And I was like, oh, this is this is it. The universe agrees with a made up mind. This has nothing to do with you pushing. It all happens in this time. But I decided to write that book because, first of all, I wanted to tell my story without the burden of a punchline. My book is not a funny book. The other thing is there's no audience that are no group of people that I'm more related to talk about this book with than you guys, because the book is about legitimacy and how they made fun of me when I was a kid because I didn't have my father's last name and they called me a bastard and illegitimate. And that was so traumatic for me that it kind of affected the way that I would see myself for many years. But to really understand that the concept of legitimacy is such a patriarchal oppressive thought. And, and it comes from, you know, it's rooted in white supremacy. I'm, I was in Nevis last week and I, I did the Hamilton tour and they call Hamilton a bastard because he didn't have his last name. And it was just his father's last name because his parents weren't mar- married. Just to think about where that stuff really comes from and how it's affected so many black and brown people that come, you know, white, poor people like so many people have approached me saying, yo, I didn't know who my father was either. And they look like everybody. It's not just black and brown people. A lot of white people, like my, I was the kid of a of an affair. My father lived down the street and I saw your special and I went and knocked on his door. Like it was just weird stuff like that. How deeply rooted this patriarchal oppression that we've been dealing with for so long has affected us in so many ways. And even in your last name, you wouldn't even think about it. My last name, Rodriguez, is a last name of one of the biggest colonizers during slavery. That was one of the worst colonizers. And the fact that, you know, I had to deal with my name on so many levels. Like, I don't know what my real name is, uh, what my real surname is. But because I don't have my father's surname, that was supposed to make me less than. And that those, all those those little things that are stuck in our the societal ways that really just chip away at women, people of color, black people, all of the people who are underneath below the line if you if you would say in this grand production that is America and the world, it was just so interesting to understand that for so many years I thought that I wasn't enough because of some racist patriarchal shit that really isn't rooted in anything cuz when you see kids messed up, you don't hear those people say the mother must not be in the home. Not once, not once. And I think it's so true because how much a word can define a human and destroy them. You know, the word legitimate itself that it just comes from prostitution. You know, it's a word that comes from criminalizing sex work. You know, all of these words that have been handed to society without any thought of their origin and what that origin actually does to those who have been given the moniker. And I, I love you taking it back. I love it. I'm going to show you this. I mean, you can't see it, but, but I want you to see this. I was in Nevis and I went to the first integrated church in the Caribbean. And there was this Thomas John Cottle was a slave owner that uh, called himself an abolitionist, but he wanted his church to be able to allow his the slaves to worship. And he was part of the abolitionist movement along with Hamilton. But that was the first church that allowed the slaves to come in. And there were on the walls of the church, 
is a list of all of those slaves that lived on that plantation. And I have never seen this when it comes to slavery. Now, when I went to Israel and I went to the Holocaust Museum, they do have as many names as they possibly can have. And they have a one part which is dedicated to the children where they call out the names of the children. And I thought it was so interesting because I had never seen the names of actual slaves because I was like, if if they had a, a museum of children of the African Holocaust and they called out the names, you'd be standing there for days. Weeks. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? And then I started to read the names and like one is London. The, the slaves were as young as three years old. And they, they had like asterisks by the slaves who were born in Africa and they had names like Sarah. And I'm like, you know that her name wasn't Sarah. It's about 16 Sarahs on this plantation. So, but I was just thinking about like, um, you know, we just don't know so much. And so I had never seen that before. And to think that I am the hope and the dream of those people. They never imagined, they died not believing that we would ever come along. Some of them did. And Mm -hmm. it's just so sobering to being able to talk about, I mean, I I got called the bastard and it was just the, the, it was one of the weirdest experiences to be so young and to have that name because it felt dirty. And I, I just wanted to shed that dirt off of me. And it took me a long time to be able to do it. But like, when you talk about words and the root of words, and so many have been so painful, so harmful for so many people, the only way through is to get dig into it, like jump into the, the wound and say, let's let's dig ourselves out of it. How are we going to get through this? How are we going to find out what this really means? And just to think of that these men have been around for centuries, just creating all this havoc in other people's spirits and souls. And to think that there will be no consequences for that is ludicrous. It's disturbing. I know this is such an important conversation and I feel like we could do this all week <laughs> talking about the profound insights that Yeah, you have. it should be Ida Rodriguez week. Thank you. And I, I'm sorry we have to wrap, but I do want to say, first of all, we're going to tell everybody where to go follow Ida all over social and stuff like that. But the reason that I think that's important in, in, in relationship to this book and in relationship to your special is that you take moments and days sometimes on when hot topics happen you speak on them but you always are thoughtful you take a moment you don't go in hot and you always have a thoughtful take and so that is why i think i love you so much because you really do care and think about it and you will laugh and feel like you're getting so much insight from all the work of ida so thank you so much for joining and when does the book come out it comes out October 17th. Please pre-order it. I want to make one of those lists. Um, it's And, you know, we I have up until October 21st at midnight to make any of the lists. So please, if you can, order the book before uh, October 21st at midnight. Done. Well, we'll be putting it, not only that, we'll be making special posts on our socials for the book. Thank we'll you. be making sure that we get it out to everybody that we know how, Ida Rodriguez. If the only way that I can see you once a year is doing this, I will, but let us know when you're in New York. I'll be in New York October 16th through the 21st doing press for the book. 
October 17th, I'm doing my release at the Lit Bar in the Bronx. So I wanted to support an independent bookstore that's owned by someone of color. She is Afro-Latina. So if you are in New York, please come to the Lit Bar on October 17th at 7 p.m. We're having a conversation about the book. All right. Amazing. Ida Rodriguez, thank you. Thank you. Follow Ida all over social media, Instagram and TikTok at Funny Ida. Her memoir, Legitimate Kid, comes out October 17th. Go pre-order it. The link is in our bio. Plus, see your live. Don't at me tour dates are at funnyida.com. Liz, that's our show. Oh my gosh. I loved our show. Thank you so much to everybody, all the guests. Thank you, Vanessa Arenas, for joining us. Her amazing report is at the societyfp.org slash we count and also in our show notes. Thank you, Ida. And thank you so much for listening. Like, subscribe, and show us some love with a five-star rating and stay connected on social media at Abortion Front. Let's make a difference together and have some fun doing it. Looking for you might fit in some abortion activism? We've got a five-part activist training series, Operation Save Abortion at operationsaveabortion.com. And visit our super cool activist calendar, which is full of local and national actions and educational opportunities. On Saturday, October 15th at 1 p.m. Eastern, INeedAnAbortion.com is hosting a virtual volunteer event where you can help make updates to their abortion clinic database, find this event, sign up, and more at the activist calendar. Next week's guests, we have Elizabeth Estrada with the National Latina Institute for Reproductive Justice. Join the Patreon. You'll support great content and get cool FBK merch and experiences. All pledges support this pod and all of our activism at Abortion Access Front. Pledge at patreon.com slash feminist buzzkills. FBK is edited by Remedy Tournay and is produced by Abortion Access Front. And finally, we leave you with Anna Lulis from Students for Life, a person showing us her whole ass with this perfect example of how twisted anti-abortion logic is. Can we talk about how people who claim to be pro-choice always say people who are pro-life want forced birth, when in reality, they're the ones advocating for an act that forces a woman to give birth early. People who are pro-life advocate for natural birth. So who's really pro-force birth? Because it's not the people who say they're pro-life. When a woman is pregnant, she's pregnant with a child and will give birth to a human child. It's not like she's not going to give birth. It's just whether or not the birth is going to be forced and if the kid is going to be alive or dead. And if you support abortion, you're technically supporting the forced birth of a dead child. And that's what's really horrifying, not stopping a genocide. Feminist Buzzkills, the podcast from Abortion Access Front. New episodes drop Friday. When BS is popping, we pop off. And if you want to support our podcast and all the work of Abortion Access Front, like, subscribe, and join our Patreon at patreon.com slash feminist buzzkills.